it's been a, a couple of weeks, man, of, of watching the, the news and the horrific conflict that we see in Ukraine. And I know we've all been praying for the innocents uh, caught in the middle of this war, and my, my heart just breaks as we, we hear and we read so many accounts of our brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus who are afraid for their lives. I actually work with a, a Ukrainian individual, and, and my school has several Ukrainian students, and I just wanted to share a couple things that their, their uh, Christian family members have shared with us as an encouragement, and then I wanted to pray for them. This is what one of their fathers shared with our school. Uh, he said this, read Psalm 10 out loud and be encouraged that Jesus is king forever and ever. He hears the desires of the afflicted, and he will strengthen their hearts, and he will do justice. Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies, even when we are not able to see it due to the fear that is gripping our hearts. And I just want us to hear some of Psalm 10 this morning. It says, rise up, Lord God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself, God, have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands so the helpless entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil person. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. And Svetlana's father is referencing this part of Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever and the nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desires of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that the men of the earth may terrify them no more. And so even though our brothers and sisters in that area of the world have blood-bought peace in their soul, we still pray for peace on the ground. So will you pray with me? Lord, we beg you in this moment to be swift in ending this strife. We ask you to bless the hands and the feet of your people in Ukraine. Help them to serve and to be a gospel light to their lost neighbors. I ask you to supernaturally deliver them to safety as well. Lord, we beg you for the salvation of the church's enemies. We ask you to give our brothers and sisters power and hardship to help them to rely upon you, to find peace in you in this moment of great tribulation. To feel a sense of gospel boldness, we ask you to strengthen them by your spirit. And in your name we pray, King Jesus, amen. And there's a story that's actually emerged from this conflict in Ukraine that parallels a lot of what's been happening in the book of Matthew so far, where we pick up this series and have a few weeks left until we talk about the Great Commission and the end of the book of Matthew. There's an unverified story that has just captured the hearts and the minds of the people of Ukraine in their fight against Russian forces. Uh, there's an individual that they've dubbed the Ghost of Kiev. 
He's apparently a, a fighter pilot that downed six Russian jets in the first day of conflict, which would make him uh, the first ace, which is a title given to pilots with five or more kills in the 21st century. Now, he's probably an urban legend, probably just a, a modern folk hero, but this figure has absolutely lit up the internet and has the capital city of Ukraine buzzing. T-shirts have been made. Tens of thousands of social media posts are already out there. And the question is, who is this man? And Pastor Matt preached out of Matthew 18, and this week you just heard we're in Matthew 27. So what's been happening in that gap, those nine chapters? Well, chapters 21 through 27 all happen in Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And Jerusalem was buzzing. Who is this man? When Jesus came into the city, it shut down. People wanted to see him. People wanted to be near to him. He had a legendary status among the people. The size of the crowds grew into the tens of thousands around him. There were people who didn't even know if he was a real person or not. Was he some kind of of, of, of legend that was going to come into the city and throw out the Roman occupiers. They asked, was he some kind of traveling mystic or healer? There were even people saying, he's one of the Old Testament prophets that's come back from the dead to do God's justice in Jerusalem. Regardless, the crowds, the religious leaders, the Romans, they had no idea what was going to happen when Jesus rolled into Jerusalem during Passover, but everyone was talking about him. Some were afraid of him. Some celebrated him. But everyone wanted to know who he was. So what did he do when he finally got into Jerusalem? Well, it was completely packed because of the festival. He cleaned out the temple, and he spent a lot of time confronting the religious leaders in public. So these are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the teachers of Judaism in Jerusalem, the most revered, respected, and educated men in the city. And a lot of what Jesus says to them is scathing. And he does this all in public, in front of large crowds. This is from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. These are Jesus' words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. Jesus was shaking things up. And something we should all remember here, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, and teachers of the law did not want to kill Jesus just because he was some traveling teacher that disagreed with them. Their motivation wasn't just that lots of people followed him either and they felt threatened. They primarily wanted to kill him because he had publicly exposed them. 
he supernaturally called them out for the fakes that they were. Their hearts were laid bare before Jesus, and they decided they would rather kill him than confess their total need of him. John Piper says this about the Pharisees. Jesus first rebukes them, saying, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's Matthew 15. Family, hear these two lines here. They had developed ways of appearing godly without really preferring or prioritizing God in their hearts. What they knew about God was disconnected from how they felt about God and therefore left them even further from God. We need to understand how easy it is for us to slip into a pharisaical attitude. We are all born believing we can earn and deserve deserve heaven. We're born resisting the idea of grace, mostly because of the awful things that grace says about us. So in our hearts, we push back against the free grace of God, thinking we can earn salvation. Well, So what does grace say about us? Primarily, that we're helpless in an eternal sense. We're helpless. Absolutely dead to God, his righteousness, his law, and his perfection. Completely and utterly separated without any kind of self-induced hope. It's why the first beatitude in Matthew 5 when Jesus gives his grand first sermon. It can be translated like this. Blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We're born resisting the idea of grace because we're born totally depraved, dead to God and unable to change. And when we look through the New Testament at the assessment of man without God is quite dark. Jesus says in John 8, talking to the Pharisees again, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 8.7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. And what does Jeremiah say and the Spirit say? It's incurable. Who can understand it? Jesus picks that, that, that theme up in Matthew 15. For from the heart come evil desires, murderers, adultery, sexual immoralities, theft, 
false testimony, slander, these are the things that defile a person. They come from the inside. John Piper defines legalism so well. The conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God. And catch this last part. It's a failure to be amazed at grace. Now, don't, don't miss what I'm saying here. The law of the Lord delights the believer. We're thankful for the wise boundaries of God's law for life. And we're also thankful that spirit-filled believers can obey and bring joy to their Father in heaven. But the law is not the basis of our right standing with God. Only the blood of Jesus can be. So to the legalist here, if you've ever found yourself wavering on, am I trusting in my own works or am I trusting in Christ? Why do you stiff arm the manifest presence of God by laboring for your own salvation? You can't earn God's favor. You're never going to get to the point where you can do it. There's no vow There's no cutting off sin by your own power. There's no appearance of godliness. You can't earn your way to God by fooling me or this church or your community group or your spouse. What was true 2,000 years ago is true today. Jesus has laid your hearts bare before him. He sees every drop of your self-protection, of your pride, your religious arrogance, Legalist, he sees the whitewashed tomb. And maybe you fooled me or another pastor, maybe even your spouse, but you cannot fool King Jesus. And he warns us throughout these nine chapters over and over again. He says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So ask this question, those who are tempted to be legalists, is your Christianity consistently aiming for acceptance and approval and affirmation of people? Jesus warns us, they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger Beware of the dissonance between what you say you believe and how you actually live and never make peace with that. Jesus warns us. This is again to the Pharisees. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you don't go in and you don't allow them to go in. One of the greatest dangers of Phariseeism is that it is contagious. When we disconnect our heart from our head, we don't make disciples of grace. We make men and women of hell. That's what Jesus says this morning. We make disciples of Satan, not daughters and sons of grace. Jesus also warns us that Pharisees add their traditions and convictions to God's word. When he talks to the Pharisees, he talks about the elaborate things that they do that are so unnecessary, and they're only in place to identify that this person is a follower of the Pharisees. 
they added on to God's law so much for so long that it became impossible for anyone to obey the basic moral commands of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus despised these men. He took the, 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 uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, took the law of God in Leviticus and codified it and added so much to it that it was book after book after book after book of explanation and additional things to do to be in right standing before God. So he says, why do you add on to the commandments of Scripture? Is God's word not sufficient? But we do the same thing. We have our preferences and traditions that we put on par with God's word. It's wild. Jesus warns us again, the Pharisees looked for every conceivable reason to not help people who were not like them. To not help the poor, to not help the marginalized, to not help the speakers of different languages or the people who lived in different regions. There were entire routes in Israel that people would travel on to avoid certain areas that include extra days of travel on foot. It was obscene to the level that these men went to avoid helping others. And Jesus warns us today to not play us versus them in any context whatsoever. We have to desire, just like Pastor Matt prayed, that all people are amazed by God's grace. That should be our prayer. Jesus warns us again in these nine chapters that Pharisees cover sin and explain sin away instead of confessing and repenting. One writer says this, they, were, they are lawful on the outside, but full of lawlessness, bleached exterior walls, but full of death, a conservative, moral, and religious social media profile, but chasing sin with every secret click. I believe, if I can speak honestly, that God is doing something in this moment, in this place. He is tilling the soil and breaking up the hardened crust and flipping sin and things that need to be, come out into the light so that growth and holiness may occur. And while it may be a painful process for some of us, it is God's will that this church is a growing and sanctified body of believers, not a room full of people tempted to be legalists. This means that there may be false converts that need to hear the gospel this morning for the first time and trust Jesus for the first time instead of trusting in your own religious work. But it also means that for those of us who are born again, sin needs to come out into the light so that it can be killed by the power of the Spirit. And I know that most of you, because I know most of you, have zero interest in having this church be a moralistic social club. I can't afford to join a boat club, but if I could, I would rather be there than at a moralistic church. That sounds way more fun to be out on the lake on Sundays. This is not what this is. 
This is not some kind of uh, uh, moral thing that we get together to make ourselves more like good law-abiding Americans. This is a family that is purchased by grace, that radically loves each other and the neighborhoods and the cities that surround us. And we come at those people with the only message that can transform them. Not look like us and act like us or come to this event and obey these moral standards that we've added on, but come and meet Jesus. He's the only one that's going to transform you. Not us, not our systems, not our structures. As good as we, we may be at counseling and redemption groups and all the things that we do well, only Jesus can change lives. So that has to be the foundation of everything we do. And the legalist will slowly drag us away into moral standards instead of abiding by the reality that only Jesus changes people. I don't want any legalism creeping up in this body because I know how destructive it is. We have a whole generation of churches who've become social moral clubs because somebody forgot the gospel and everybody was okay with it. So let's go to chapter 27. And we're going to start with verse 15. Join me there. And this is the story that we need, as Pastor Piper says, to be amazed by grace anew this morning. This is what we need, this narrative. Chapter 27, starting with verse 15. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it that you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests, the elders, so these are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas! They answered. Pilate asked them, well, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. And then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot started instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And here, here's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people answered. His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus comes into the city and the crowd shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. God's here to save us. And less than a week later, 
some of that same crowd is now shouting, crucify him. And in the midst of what we just talked about with the Pharisees and Jesus' arrest, he's passed around. Because everyone knows he's innocent. (laughs) Even some of the most wicked figures in the New Testament narratives can't find fault in this man. So he's passed to Herod, who's just interested in meeting Jesus because he sees him as a mystic. But he can't find fault, so he passes him back to the Pharisees who have a fake trial in the middle of the night. And then he's finally passed to the Romans because the Pharisees are so bloodthirsty, they realize only the pagans are going to kill this guy during Passover. And that's what has to happen. The most amazing thing about this story, not the most amazing, one of the most amazing things about this story is that there's only a handful of people that are mentioned in all four gospel narratives. Even Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, is not mentioned in all four. All the disciples are not mentioned in all four. You've got Jesus' mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Pilate, and another guy named Barabbas. He's in all four gospel accounts. Matthew describes him as a notorious prisoner. Luke says he's a murderer and an insurrectionist. So in this moment, I just want you to see this scene because it's unbelievable. Pilate is the Roman-installed governor of this really troublesome outskirt of the Roman Empire. And he stands in in a mini coliseum, a mini uh, uh, place where people would gather and make decisions and do government uh, affairs. And he stands on top of some kind of platform with two men. And he knows that the Jews have a tradition that on the day of Passover, right before the festival begins, he releases a prisoner on death row to try and appease the crowds so that they don't have any problems during Passover because it's a busy city time. So he stands on this audacious stage presenting Jesus, the innocent son of God, and Barabbas, the thug, rebel, and murderer. Barabbas was on death row for trying to overthrow the Roman rule of Jerusalem. He was about to be executed for some of the very things that the crowds wanted Jesus to do. There's a time in the Gospels where the crowds decide Jesus is our military king, and we're going to get a horse, and we're going to put him on it, and we're going to ask him to go into Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans so the Jewish people can be free again, and Jesus actually disappears. (laughs) Just gone from the crowd in that moment. But that's what Barabbas is on death row for. And here's the thing that we can understand that's helpful in this time and any time this is preached Jesus is the Messiah, and he did come to set us free. But there is something worse than any government system and any kind of oppressive earthly rule and reign, and that's sin. That's Jesus' primary concern in this moment. The Romans were terrible. They were wickedly oppressive, the worst kinds of pagans maybe ever in human history. And Jesus is primarily concerned with sin. What does that tell you about how serious sin is? 
There's hardly any political statements or political movement by Jesus in the New Testament. Do you know how often he had the opportunity to talk about Caesar and the fact that it was some kind of God cult? The reality of the truth of the statement that Jesus is Lord was so confrontational in the first century because what they said then is Caesar is Lord. And Jesus shows up saying something different. But yet in the midst of all of that, there's hardly any political movement at all because Jesus, in his wisdom and in the reality of the way the universe is made, sin is seen as far more serious a bondage than any kind of governmental system or oppressive regime. And so Pilate then asked the crowd, who do you want? There's no comparison here. Barabbas is a rightful prisoner who should be executed. He's a murderer. According to Old Testament law, he should be executed. He's in chains. He deserves this. And then there's Jesus, who is in chains at this point, completely innocent. What has Jesus done but heal and restore and deliver and set free and open blind eyes and open deaf ears and raise the dead, the children of people who were suffering because their daughter or their son had died? What has Jesus done but be full of grace and love? And I want you to hear the crowds in this moment. They are bloodthirsty, energized by Satan himself for their hate of Jesus. We want Barabbas. Give us the murderer. And the soldiers come up and they unshackle Barabbas. And he walks down the platform. And Jesus, all the while, stood there silent. Let them have Barabbas. Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. And when we look at this story, I realize who Barabbas is. That's me. That's you. Here, as Jesus is delivered to death and Barabbas is released to new life, we have the first substitution of the cross. This violent man who deserves to be executed is the first one freed by Jesus. I want us to notice three things from this text. One, we deserve what Jesus suffered because we stand just like Barabbas. Condemned, you and I need a substitutionary atonement, meaning someone has to pay the price for our personal sins. We can't pay it. But I am, I've been asking God to convict in these moments 
the false convert if they're here, the unsaved if they're here, to bring them to the point of trusting in Jesus and not themselves. But I've also been begging the Spirit to give those of us who are believers a new sense of joy and thankfulness in our salvation. When's the last time we reflected on what we have been spared from? The chains of Barabbas are my chains. The execution that awaited Barabbas is what I deserve and you deserve. The ancient writers are are unanimous in their stating that crucifixion was the worst kind of punishment and death ever engineered by fallen man. One writer says, punished with limbs outstretched, they're fastened and nailed to the stake or the cross in the most bitter torment, evil food for birds of prey and grim pickings for dogs. Another writer says, it's embarrassing. A man would hang naked on a wooden cross set in a prominent place albeit at a crossroads or in the theater on high ground, for all to see and mock, and it was excruciating. And that word, excruciating, comes to us through a Latin root that literally means the torment of the cross. That's what we've been spared from. That's what I deserve. How can I not be amazed by grace? How can I not be driven to my knees in love and adoration for my silent Savior who stood there as Barabbas was freed? Point two, the crowd chose the wrong Jesus. Barabbas, in some sense, was just simply a thug trying to cover his evil desires and behavior by joining himself to something that appeared right right? The overthrow of the Romans and to get them out of Jerusalem seemed like, on the surface, a very good thing. But Barabbas wasn't a beloved freedom fighter. He was a terrorist. That's the word that Luke uses, essentially. He was feared by the people and feared by the Romans. Nobody liked him. But he's a picture of maybe a good thing taken too far. He was going to do it himself, be his own messiah, drive out the Romans and make everything right through the shedding of Roman blood on Jerusalem's streets. He was going to make it right himself. And in most modern translations, Barabbas' name is actually not properly rendered. It's not accurately rendered. His name, quite literally, is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus bar Abba. Jesus, son of a father. This is, this is clearly a contrast for us, that these two men stand before Pilate. My initial setup in the nine chapters of Matthew that led to this is because I want you to know that those who are tempted to legalism and a pharisaical spirit chose the wrong Jesus. That's what this led to. It wasn't an innocent type of sin. It got to the point where they chose the wrong Jesus. Jesus. Was there somebody in the crowd that maybe made the connection between their names? I don't know. Jesus was a common first name. But it's certainly a choice between two types of saviors. 
Do you want a man of violent insurrection now or a man of peaceful justice in the future? Do you want a man of the sword or a man of the cross? Do you want the tall and mighty King Saul, the strong man, or the little shepherd boy, David? And the crowd chose wrong. And family, we have the same choice nearly every single day. Do we want a Jesus that's made in our own image with all the tricky portions of the New Testament and the words that he shared with us taken out? And, and, or do we want the Jesus who actually says to us, pick up your cross and follow me? Do we want the Oprah Jesus with all the pleasant sayings and none of the nine chapters that we just went through? All of the love and acceptance, but none of the reality of the damning nature of sin. Do we want the Jesus of pop culture or the sports star Jesus that's thanked after every touchdown or the Jesus that's on celebrities' T-shirts or shows up in The Simpsons or South Park? This is why we plead with Roman Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. You have chosen the wrong Jesus. Only the New Testament gives an accurate, trustworthy portrait of the Son of God. That's all we have to operate from. You can't add to it. Do you follow a passive Jesus, like the guy that's in a bathrobe sitting up on top of a hill with a lamb with no cares in the world? Or do you follow the man of sorrows who just a few hours from this account is hung on a cross suffering for you and me? Do you follow a dead Jesus? Do you functionally believe that he really doesn't have much power in my day-to-day life, doesn't have much to say about how I live, doesn't have any real effect on what I do or how I think? Or do you follow the living Jesus who does have bearing on all of those things, who's currently seated at the right hand of the Father, who's going to one day return, tear open the heavens, return with the saints and the angels to finally and fully kill my greatest enemy, sin and death forever cast into the fire. That's the Jesus that I want to follow. Think about the portrait that we get of Jesus in Revelation 19. John says, Then I saw the heavens open, and there was a white horse, and his rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head, and he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. His robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty against sin. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. And to get even more personal for us here, because it breaks my heart when I hear this from people, do you follow a Jesus who is cold and calculated and distant from his people? Or do you follow the Jesus who wept at the death of his friend 
when he saw the destructive nature of sin in our fallen world. The peaceful and powerful king who showed Thomas's side because he wanted to assure his friend that it's really me and I'm really here for you, Thomas. Do you follow the Jesus who assured Peter after the resurrection of his love for him and his desire for him to feed the sheep of God even after Peter denied him multiple times? Do you follow a Jesus that reminds you more of your earthly father than the reality of what the New Testament says about our king? Did you have a dad that always seemed to keep you at arm's length because you just weren't enough for him? That's not your heavenly father. How can you know of God's love for you? You can see it primarily on the cross of Christ where God the Father, before anything was made, created the covenant of redemption with the Son to send the Son to die for you and I, God's people. That's love. That's not keeping you at arm's length like you've experienced from your earthly father. And if you're a non-believer here, God is not keeping you at arm's length today either. If you feel the conviction of your sin and your lostness and your desperate need for someone to stand in your place, then that means that God is calling you to himself. And you can respond in repentance and belief and then come to the table with us and celebrate this gracious king. It's pretty likely that Barabbas was the leader of the two men that were crucified on either side of Jesus, which means that Jesus went to the cross of Barabbas. He was executed in the place of the one who deserved that punishment. Point three, Barabbas could not free himself. He rightfully stands condemned. He's a thug. He's a murderer. He's a criminal. He's, he's violated Roman law and Jewish law and any other law that would be in the land. Everyone has condemned him. This is the opportunity we have to be amazed by grace this morning afresh. Because some of you are in a deep, dark place of bondage to sin and suffering, and you're thinking, man, I'm going to have to work really hard to get myself out of this. To which I say, stop. What are you thinking? You're going to get yourself out of this place of bondage and sin and suffering? Just like Barabbas, we have no power apart from the Spirit to free ourselves. You cannot do it. You're no match for sin. All of human history is a testament to the fact apart from God, sin wins 100% of the time. Last summer, our kids memorized this from Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. Every part of Jesus' earthly ministry is filled with, with unmerited grace. The woman at the well didn't deserve Jesus' kindness. The crippled didn't deserve to be made whole. Lazarus didn't deserve to be brought to life. Barabbas didn't deserve to be pardoned. And I do not deserve the grace 
of God, but I have experienced it because of his deep, affectionate love for his people. That's what I bank on every single day. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus, the same Jesus that stood silent as Barabbas was freed, is the same Jesus who's shown his grace to me and to you, and he's the same yesterday and today and forever. There's still endless, unmerited grace being poured out on this planet by Jesus upon his people. Jesus stood there and said, yeah, let them have Barabbas take me instead. We can play games and try and figure out why some people are more blessed than others or have less suffering than others, or we can come to the point where we realize that it's all God and God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline or your devotion or your religious works. Your greatest challenge is to believe and live in light of the gospel. That's what we need. We need to believe it and live it out. And that's what the Spirit blesses and does in us. Because this exchange is unbelievable. And it's happened millions, maybe billions of times since then. Where Jesus, in his grace, looks at someone in chains and says, I will take your chains. I will take your sin. And in that moment, I see Jesus going to my post to be scourged and walking to my cross to be crucified. That's the grace of God. One pastor says this, how did we ever get to thinking we're going to set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. His blood is sufficient for your salvation. His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every sin and every challenge and every temptation. We sing it, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's what it means to be amazed by grace. And we know nothing else about Barabbas. He shows up in all four Gospels, never again in the Scriptures, and never is in any other historical record. I can hope that maybe he was in the crowd on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and said to the crowd, you, us, we killed the Messiah, but I have good news. He has come back to life to rule and reign over his people. But regardless of what happened to him, I just want us to be amazed by grace. I want you to see the rebel that is in chains you and I. I want you to see the bloodthirsty religious leaders, the legalists, who would rather kill Jesus than confess their total need of him. And I want you to see the silent, innocent Jesus who is not in his chains, but he's wrapped up in mine and he's wrapped up in yours, the perfect, innocent man who only ever healed and delivered and loved and restored and raised people from the dead and fed the people. He was silent. 
John Calvin said this, God's son stood trial before a mortal man and suffered accusation and condemnation that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. Christ kept quiet then to be our spokesman in front of the Father now. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need you to do a work in us, those who are here and who belong to you, who you've purchased. Help us to see the grace that has been shown to us in all the suffering, in all the pain, in all the sickness. Remind us that all of that is temporary. And that the only thing that's eternal is your perfect love for your people. That's who we are. That's our identity. So help us to see, to be reminded of the moment when we realized we were in chains. When we were unable to know you or see you or love you or experience your peace. And help us to remember the moment when Jesus looked at us and said, you are are now free. And we know from the scriptures that those who the Son has set free are free indeed. So remind your body here today that that's the reality of the life they live in. There is no longer a drop of condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. That's who we'll be forever. That's how we do bold evangelism. That's why we can have deep friendships, because there's no condemnation for us, because Jesus drank the cup dry. Encourage us, Father. We need your spirit to remind us of who we are and whose we are. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone who is tempted to be legalistic, and to have a pharisaical spirit to hear the clear warnings from your son in the word today, to turn from that and realize there's a better way. It's actually called the way, and it's embracing the free grace that you offer us in Christ Jesus and to stop relying on their own religious works or moralism or goodness or whatever. Pray that you free more Barabbases this morning. That you break more chains of the enslaved this week through our humble and bold proclamation of the gospel. Help the people in this city to know that there has come a marvelous light, and his name is Jesus. We ask all these things in the resurrection power of the Spirit. Amen.